Inside the Adventure, episode number 64, with Mike Fottenhauer. If you've ever been afraid to step outside your comfort zone, then you're in the right place. Inside the Adventure features incredible athletes and everyday people sharing their epic stories of pushing life to its limits. Get ready to be inspired, face your fears, and take action with your host, Marshall Mosier. What's up, guys, and welcome to another episode of Inside the Adventure. This is your host, Marshall Mosher, and today we're going to hear the story of Mike Fottenhauer, the founder of Osprey Packs. Mike remembers backpacking as a young boy in his home state of Oregon with his brothers and father while wearing a backpack with an awful fit. With the help of his mother, he learned to sew and created his first backpack at the age of 16. As a young entrepreneur in Santa Cruz, California, Mike opened a retail shop in the front of his rented house where backpackers and travelers drawn by word of mouth came to get measured for his custom-fitted made-to-order packs, each one constructed by Mike himself over the course of several days. To these avid travelers, the legendary packs were well worth the wait for one key reason, Mike's obsession with the perfect fit, a trait originating from his study of the human body through his pursuit of art in college. I grew up in Portland, Oregon. I was born there in 1953. And uh, I come from a fairly large family. I have six brothers and sisters. I recall as I grew up, uh, suddenly having a new member of the family appear on the scene. And that went on for years. Uh, Are you the father middle a- or the... The older or younger? I am the second oldest. There so are really got uh, a chance four. to see everyone come in. Yeah, I did. In fact, uh, a brother and a sister were born on this, have the same birthday that I do. So that was uh, something strange to me that I would, my mother would have uh, children on my birthday, but I don't suppose she could control that. <laughs> that um, makes it easy for her, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. My father, <clears throat> my father was a Lutheran minister. And he was he was born and raised in Canada in Edmonton. I'm in Kamloops, uh, Vernon, Penticton area, and so we would go up there every summer for a vacation. And he was a fisherman, very much uh, devoted to the outdoors when he could find the time. And we would go on hikes, uh, carry pack rafts with us wherever we went, and. Fish the hell out of lakes up there, which I guess is what you did back in those old days. Um, and I, I grew to love the outdoors, particularly that summertime, which was probably when my family was the happiest. It was uh, when we were all on vacation and, and really exploring the outdoors. And of course, Portland wasn't far from some great spots. Uh, I learned to ski on Mount Hood and wonderful place to grow up. Did you get a lot of that outdoor inspiration from your parents? Was that something that they they did regularly with with you and your brothers and sisters? Well, it's funny. I recall going on hikes with my older and younger brother uh, and being the one that wasn't happy about it. I was always lagging behind. I wanted to check out things. Um, They were constantly chiding me for being behind. And... uh, I have to say, say I didn't always enjoy those times um, because I 
I felt like there was too much of a rush to get the thing done and not to enjoy what was going on there. And I suppose that's maybe how I discovered that I loved the outdoors and being out there and uh, being with the family, but also seeing wild nature. That's that's uh, a lot of my upbringing in Oregon. Senator Were any that. of those uh, those experiences particularly memorable or impactful for you? Uh, well, my father would sometimes take us out with youth groups from the church. There were a couple mishaps, I think, that were really brought out to me how dangerous it can be if you don't know what you're doing. I think uh, in one episode, there was a young guy who nearly drowned in a lake swimming around and we were involved in rescuing him. But uh, I think probably the most memorable things were being out in the wilderness and, and dealing with foul weather and growing to appreciate that and how you have to be prepared when you go out there. What were some of the things that happened uh, in the way that you responded to those, um, either if you were prepared or, or maybe not prepared? Well, I grew up also as a Boy Scout, and I think there's a, a lot of attention devoted to preparing kids for the outdoors. We would go on outings, and uh, we also had our own, own share of mishaps. Nothing that serious, um, but as you get further out remote, particularly in Canada, and you face the possibilities of getting lost and uh, having to rely on a leader who presumably knows where they're going, I learned a lot from that to kind of rely on my own sense of judgment when I'm out there rather than my brother's. <laughs> were, your, were your brother's uh, sense of judgment maybe not as good? I'm sure they would disagree with me on that. Uh, I think uh, we were out there so far sometimes that we had no idea where we were. And uh, I'm not sure that my father did either. He was so involved in fishing that he would often forget where he was himself. And we would sort of have to help him uh, find the way back because he was really out there to uh, find the most remote area to fish out. Was there ever a, a time when when you and, and the family thought you might be lost and, and had to navigate your way back? Well, I do recall one episode when I was, I believe, 13, we were camping up in the Sierras. In fact, I think we were at a place called Hellhole Reservoir. And the drive into that place was long and grueling, hot, dusty roads, maybe a few hours extra of driving to get in there. And when it came time to leave, I declared that I didn't want to accompany them back. I would. Our next destination was uh, Tahoe City. And I pulled out a map, which was essentially a map of California, and showed them where I thought we were and said, I'll just hike and meet you there. My father and mother argued about that for a long time, but finally my father said, I'll just let them go. And so I took off by myself. Uh, I think I had a can of peaches in my pack and uh, figured I'd be in Squaw Valley area by nightfall. Well, somewhere on late evening, I discovered that I was lost and I struggled 
down this mountainside through a grove of manzanita. And again, all I had was the map of California, but I knew that there was a watershed down below and that would lead me somewhere. And it took me a couple hours climbing under the underbrush and I came out, uh, collapsed, uh, you know, with pulled out my bag, went to sleep. When I woke up that morning, I realized, well, I looked up and noticed that I was on a trail. I believe it was the John Muir Trail. And I was found. I uh, hiked into Tahoe City, arrived at a cabin in that area um, a day late. Nobody seemed all that concerned. But it, it gave me that sense that I could go out into the wilderness by myself and kind of figure out what was going on without too much assistance from maps or anything else use my uh, sense of uh, where I was in my judgment I since then have learned that I'm much better at navigating in the wild than I am in uh, civilized areas I get very lost when I'm in a city my wife uh, jokes about how we will pull into a gas station to get gas and when I pull back out, I, I go the wrong way back for maybe 10 minutes without even realizing where, where I am. <laughs> Fortunately, you always have Google Maps for a city, whereas it's a little harder outdoors. That's hard. true. That's true. It's hard to get lost these days. That's true. Which is unfortunate. Of, uh, that's, that's very true. Yeah, I guess it's very different from what it used to be. But uh, what was the effect that those experiences had on you? I think uh, uh, maybe a a sense of um, relying on yourself and your own judgment, um, not being afraid of of being in remote areas, um, and I guess experiencing the outdoors on a very, very personal level, not being with a group of people where maybe you're being told what to look at, and uh, I think um, finding your own way. I suppose that's uh, kind of been the theme of my life is uh, setting my own course and shooting for it and trying not to rely on others too much, which of course is, uh, I've learned since then that that's the only way to get anywhere is to rely on the help of others. So it seems like those experiences had a really big impact on the mindsets that you adopted um, that you implemented well into the future, uh, far past those actual experiences. Um, how did how did those experiences impact what you decided you wanted to do in the future and ultimately give you the uh, entrepreneurial uh, excitement to want to go out and start creating your own gear and, and sewing your own packs when uh, when you made your first one when you were 16? Well, I, I think I got into this business primarily because I believed in building my own gear. I, I suppose it's that sense of self-reliance. I wanted to be relying on, on equipment that I personally built for myself. I knew where its strengths and weaknesses were. I loved designing that stuff. I used to make sleeping bags, down jackets, um, canoes, um, all sorts of things to use in the outdoors. And, 
I loved designing and building those things, but I especially loved using them because I felt very connected to them. And um, I felt like I was surrounded with that confidence of knowing what I was relying on. And I suppose that's what led me into this business. I was around 20 or 21 when I started Osprey and um, I had had a little bit of experience working for other uh, companies, uh, odd jobs, uh, for example, doing a lot of gardening for people in the area, um, working in restaurants, things like that. And I worked at a, one of the first organic restaurants up at UCSC when I attended university in Santa Cruz. And I had friends there that were also interested in the outdoors and were designing and making their own gear. They were making down equipment. Uh, they still are in operation, um, the Downworks in Santa Cruz. And we talked a lot about doing this, about forming a company. So we opened up our shops on the same street in downtown Santa Cruz. And for me, it was a, um, I guess it was a move to not work for other people, but to control my own destiny in that sense. Was that after college that you decided to do that? And I know that you started creating your own gear well before uh, you ended up going off to college. What did that initial uh, experience of creating that gear, um, how did that impact what you thought you wanted to do and what you ended up studying in school? I went to school uh, studying art. I specialized in photography and printmaking, etching, lithography. And I think, I guess I've always considered myself an artist. I uh, think those that went hand in hand with making your own gear, um, not just your own gear, but the things that you surround yourself with, furniture and trying to uh, control the your, your environment so that it's nothing foreign around you. Um, I never finished university. I, I, I probably went there long enough to get a degree, but I was just more interested in learning um, the art of photography and printmaking. And uh, uh, then at that age, I realized, well, I've got to make a living. So I, I opened up this retail shop and Really, I uh, was incredibly naive about what I was doing about business and about how to uh, do bookkeeping, etc. Uh, um, but I just slowly moved into that. I, I custom built gear for people. When I look back on some of the first creations that I did, it's it's kind of embarrassing to realize that, that uh, no particular skill there, uh, a lot of learning to do, but I kept at it and spent probably 10 years building custom gear for people out of my shop there. That was a wonderful experience. I uh, lived day to day and uh, didn't make a lot of money, but it was enough to live on back in those days. My rent was cheap and got to know know a lot of people and uh, I'd build their gear. They would go out and travel around the world, do some climbing or expeditions and come back and tell me how the gear worked. And it's really a wonderful feedback loop there with a lot of personal connection with your customers. It sounds like in the early days of creating those initial packs, 
that there was a huge emphasis on fitting correctly where they might not have been with some other brands. Um, do you think that ability to create a pack that fits so well uh, came from your experience from art and your study of human anatomy um, through what you were learning in your art degree? Yeah, I think a lot of it came from that. I, I did a lot of hours doing life drawing. And, and that's a particular um, scene where you're focused on the human body and you're uh, depicting it in your drawings and you you learn a lot about anatomy that way. Um, but I think perhaps more of that came from the responsibility I felt to each individual customer that came in that I was actually making the product specifically for them. I didn't want to rely on you know, some kind of system that created a one-size-fits-all ability to knock out gear quickly. Um, I did a lot of measuring of the body, and I, I tried to make sure that the gear I was making was specifically tailored for those customers that um, I was not relying on a, a one-size-fits-all system and that uh, each customer knew that I took the care to fit them correctly and to try to meet their needs. So I think that uh, experience comes largely from that. But I also find that in my design work, I do a lot of sketching. And so much of what I do does re relate to how the load you're carrying is transmitted to your body. And that sketching is always very handy for me in uh, relating to what I'm building and how it relates to the human body. To me, that's the crux of all my work is, is that um, understanding of anatomy and load transmission. I try to work those problems out before I do anything about feature sets, et cetera. I leave a lot of that up to other designers. But the engineering and the art of uh, Creating an ergonomic and anatomic design that, that moves and works with the body is, is the challenge for me. Was that something that was unique in the industry that not too many others were doing? Well, I, I guess I was sort of surprised to find out that that might be the case. I do remember designing things like curved shoulder harnesses and more anatomical back panels and conically cut hip belts. And it's, when I look back on those days, it's sort of surprising to me how generic and how straight all the lines were in most of the product in those old days. And, of course, it's much harder to, to design when you uh, move into curvatures. Um, it's one thing that my factories have always complained about it. They know Osprey product when they see it on the line because there are, they say there are generally a lot more bizarre curves and angles than they see in other product. It seems like those early packs were almost legendary amongst the uh, hikers that, that you made them for. What was that process like and, and what were those early days like in terms of creating um, this gear that, that generated such a buzz from the community that people came and, and waited just to get that gear um, that they couldn't get anywhere else. Well, I suppose that's uh, 
a service that you couldn't find in very many places, even back in those old days, um, where somebody would actually spend upwards of an hour or more um, discussing what you needed, uh, selecting colors, uh, not that we had a lot of choice of color. Um, I had a partner in the very early days, her name was Lori White, and we worked together in patterning and in uh, sewing up each piece for the customer. And I think we did a pretty good job of, of individualizing that fit and also in working out accessories and features that they specifically needed. Um, we did a wide variety of things. We built climbing gear, portal ledges, and climbing harnesses and equipment that perhaps wasn't so regulated back then, um, but we overbuilt it. We were very paranoid about what could go wrong. And uh, that that we learned a lot from uh, really dealing with all the different customers' needs and making sure that we were going to fulfill those needs and not end up with some bad stories at the end. It seems like those were were days well before you actually started Osprey when you were creating those packs um, in your house. Uh, what was it like when you officially decided that you were going to make this into a business and get started um, with that kind of first entrepreneurial step? I didn't think of it as anything more than one person's locally uh, community-oriented business. In fact, the very first name for the company was Santa Cruz Recreational Packs. I simply couldn't come up with a name. And quickly after that, I, I figured the name Osprey and had a label made, which somehow made it official. And I sewed those on all of the early product. And where did that name come uh, from? Again, I had no... Well, the name came from, I think it came from an experience I had when I was young hiking with my father and brothers um, in Wyoming. I think we're in the little little Grand Canyon um, uh, in Wyoming, and there was a electrical storm going on. We were um, high up in the canyons, and our hair was sort of standing on end, and three ospreys came swooping over from below, from the river down below, right up over us. And that was a very inspirational moment for me. And I remembered that. And at that same time in 1974, Osprey was an endangered species. So I was particularly interested in that and picking a, a, a animal that uh, represented a, a wild creature that was um, in danger. And then I also knew that uh, a lot of companies would name their brand after their last name. And mine's uh, is very long, long and unpronounceable. And I really didn't want that onus of having my name on my label either. So I settled on Osprey. And once you switched to the Osprey name and kept developing packs, um, was it a lot different from the early days of, of when you were treating it more as a hobby? How did it really become a, a job for you? Good question. I, it wasn't until perhaps around 11 years later after I started that I decided to go into wholesale. I was married at 
that time. And my wife said, you know, you, you might want to think about moving this to the next level. And I kind of thought about that for a while. We decided to go begin a wholesale production business, which means you are building product and selling it at a much lower price than you were for retail. And you have to start thinking about economies of scale and how you're going to build that product and still make a profit. And that was that was a very rough experience. Our first wholesale production order came from a small shop down in Santa Barbara, Upper Limits, and it was not a large order, but it took us about four or five days of nonstop sewing night and day to, to build that order. And of course the uh, pricing on that was at wholesale. So that was a, uh, a wake up call. We realized we could not build a viable operation in Santa Cruz. So we pulled up and moved to Southwest Colorado. We were very lucky in Southwest Colorado to find a small operation there that was doing contract sewing for Gore-Tex. They were building like NASA spacesuits and things like that. And they were shutting down the day we walked in there to, to investigate that uh, availability, availability of that building. And they essentially handed us over uh, about five Navajo sewers and the, uh, they had another 30 that were waiting in the wings and a building and uh, industrial sewing machines. It was just kind of a turnkey operation for us there. And we took that and went with it. And uh, from there, the operation grew fairly quickly. Uh, this is all in a town of 800 in uh, remote southwest Colorado. And that continued on for um I think in 1995, we moved down into Cortez, 10 miles south, and uh, it was another five years before we uh, realized that we could not compete with uh, Asian production. All of our competition had moved offshore, and we realized that we were not going to survive unless we investigated that. I took a trip to Korea and uh, was impressed with the skills over there. Right around the year 2000, we started to shift our production over to Asia. At that time, we had about 100 sewers in Colorado. We had uh, maybe 80 or 90 percent of them were Navajo. And we were just beginning to understand how to really do production. And that was a pretty severe blow to the company to have to pack it up and move. But it was a matter of survival. And uh, from there on, we moved to our production to Korea. And shortly after that, when the U.S. normalized trade with Vietnam, we moved our operation down to Vietnam, which is where we are at the moment. What was one of the biggest hurdles you had to jump over throughout that, that whole story and that process? And were there any times, especially in the early days, where you thought that this business might not succeed? And how did you get past that? I think the most difficult period was during that transition to Asia where a lot of American industries were pulling up and moving over there. We were of a mindset to do everything we could to keep it in the U.S. We had invested uh, so much of our lives in building that operation, um, setting up production, um, learning all of the skills necessary to do manufacturing. And 
then to have to say goodbye to a workforce which we phased out over a period of time was very difficult but i have to say that our operation here in cortez is as large as it was when we left although now of course it's not manufacturing it's based more on the usual things you'd find with uh, marketing sales and uh, it and you know the the ba- basic administration of an operation fulfillment etc and we're still a very strong part of this tiny community and that feels good but uh, at the same time we have an operation in vietnam i travel over there four times a year i'm still very much involved in design and we have a team of designers over there that i meet with on skype fairly often and it's really nice to have a a, a dual operation going um, where you have another group of people on the other side of the world that can uh, work with the manufacturing, uh, have close ties with the factories, and uh, yet we still control our all of our sample making and all of our design. We really don't let the factories do that. We manage that ourselves so that we can maintain our uh, design integrity. Earlier on in the interview, you mentioned that when you first got started, you were um, really naive in a lot of ways in terms of truly understanding what it would take to to create um, this into a company. How did you go through the process of figuring out the things that you didn't know and getting over the hurdles that um, they couldn't see the other side of, of the problems that were in front of you? Well, I think there were a never-ending supply of hurdles to jump over as you grow your own business. If it's successful, it just presents another um, concern for you every day. And that's exciting in a lot of ways. I loved that challenge. Uh, manufacturing becomes a small aspect of it. I think the the most difficult part of a, a running a company or owning a company is probably uh, the social aspects of it, um, making sure that your employees are happy and content as much as possible, and yet that you're getting the work done. So you you learn to rely on bringing in expertise from the outside. And because the skills that's needed are ever-changing, you have to constantly educate your staff and bring in new talent and overturn where needed to uh, maintain the the levels of expertise to keep up with uh, the competition. So, yeah, I I never feel like I have um, the business under control. We have a wonderful group of... um, people running the company right now. And I'm fortunate enough to that I can actually work out of my design studio up at my home. And um, I go down there, of course, because I'm an owner of the company to make sure that everything is working properly and deal with all, all of the... At the same time, I'm able to put my head down and focus on what I love, which is the whole process of, of creating the product. A lot of times when people go to pursue an idea that they've had, it's easy to make excuses for why it can't work or why you shouldn't do it. Um, You know, I don't have the experience. I don't have the funding. 
Um, I don't, I don't have the time. Um, how did you push past all of the reasons why you shouldn't do this and focus on the reasons why you should and the reason why it would be successful? Well, I suppose the best answer to that is simply uh, I did it out of naivety. I, I didn't often know what I was getting into, but I loved the, um, the challenge aspect of it. it would, the problems would be figured out. We would figure out a way to make this happen. And that has never failed me, really, in the long run. Um, we At the company, we uh, have sort of a motto that basically says that we have no patience for those who say it can't be done. And that can lead us into some trouble, but that's part of the game. You you dig in, you wade in, you find out you're over your head, and then you, you dig yourself out and you come out ahead in the long run. We've been doing this for so long that we... Uh, we have a fairly extensive library of successes and failures to draw from. And I have recently, I was looking through our um, archives of product. Um, we've collected a lot of gear over the last 40 years and I was overwhelmed. It's sort of like looking through a, a photo album that old photos, very difficult to stop doing that. You pick up one and it brings back memories and then you go to the next one and we have uh, so much product and so many ideas that some of them never came to fruition they were uh, wild ideas at the time and kind of just shelved them for the moment and said this maybe we can figure out how to make this work later and we've run out of time so let's just uh, move on and that's all available to us and uh that's what's exciting is that something will come up and we can go, oh, wow, 10 years ago we were trying this out. And now now that the market is ready. I know that sometimes looking into the past and looking back through some of those old pictures sometimes helps us to refocus on what we want our mission and impact to be in the future. Um, through all the work you've done with Osprey, what do you hope to leave uh, as that impact on the world and on the work that you've done? That's a tough question to answer. Um, I think, I believe that uh, people develop personal relationships with their gear because they rely on them, on that equipment to get them through tough times or through very enjoyable times. Um, it's, it's a big, your equipment becomes your companion. And so many times we've run across people who have had our gear for many years. It's certain aspects of that gear may not be performing properly. Maybe a zipper's failed or whatever. They they don't want it replaced. They want it fixed. And I would like to think that we did all we could to make gear that was reliable for people that they could undertake the wildest expedi expedition, the most dangerous journey they can imagine. Uh, and bring that thing with them, it would not let them down, and it would become a very valuable part of their personal wardrobe through their life, and we've seen that happen, and that's, that's sort of like an extension of Osprey that I see out there. I travel around 
around the world at times, particularly to Asia, and I see our gear in some of the most remote areas in the jungles of uh, Cambodia. I've I've seen our packs, wheeled packs being rolled across the jungle floor, and I I kind of feel like it's hard to get away from it now, but I I love the fact that we are all over the world and we're serving people well. What impact do you do you see it having on some of those communities and places that you might not have been able to envision before? I'm not sure I know what you mean by that. Yeah, so just going back to the uh, thing you said before in terms of having some of those backpacks you know, being wheeled through the, the jungles in Cambodia, are there any ways that, that it's being used, that your product are being used now that you may have not been able to envision um, earlier on? And what impact have you seen that have on that community? Well, one thing I became more aware of recently is um, often when I travel to Vietnam, I will take side excursions to test our gear and simply to uh, get out and have some adventure. And I've seen our gear being used by uh, fairly large groups. You might call them hordes of adventure travelers who are more and more remote areas and uh that was a little bit of a wake-up call for me and that i'm i'm part of a of a trend that i think is uh bringing let's say civilization to the more remote areas of the world and i'm not sure that i like that part but uh on the other hand i feel like I'm part of a company that bears a responsibility for um, making sure that when we build our gear, we're uh, we're taking into consideration all the aspects of um, building a sustainable product. One that we guarantee that we will back up, that we'll repair if it goes wrong, and we'll keep it in service. In terms of how it ref- uh, has affected those remote areas. Well, we have been doing production in Vietnam for a long time, and uh, we've developed a nice, close-knit community out there amongst the factories and employees we have over there building our gear. And uh, we also do feel that we have a responsibility in Vietnam to uh, pay back that community of people who have spent their lives working so hard on our equipment. If you could go back and tell yourself when you were first getting started making your initial packs, one piece of advice, what would it be? I suppose I would say uh, don't give up, don't get discouraged. Uh, You're going to uh, run into some difficult times where you don't feel like you know what you're doing, but in the end persistence and the pursuit of building something you believe in and learning along the way will pay off and it will uh, promote a stronger and ever larger community of people who believe in the same thing. Thanks for listening to another episode of Inside the Adventure. That was the story of Mike Fadenhauer, the founder of Osprey, who at the end of the interview told me that in the last 30 years, 
he hasn't missed a single outdoor retailer conference until this very last one. And that goes to show you that Mike's incredible ability to create outstanding products really does stem from that personal relationship of him face-to-face between Osprey and the customer.